Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Make sure that you check us out on social media by following at leftpoc, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. And also to check us out wherever you get your podcasts, of course, iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, etc., etc. And finally, be sure to check out our Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc, where everything is free and open to the public, reading materials, um, outside interviews, etc. But of course, we welcome your donations, which you can do in a dollar or more per month increments. Um, again, that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. Anyway, now on with the show. Today we're speaking with Jason Bettis. Jason Bettis is a writer, organizer, and researcher who studies the connections between leftist organizing approaches, political movement formation, policing, incarceration, and economics. He works to create political projects that connect organizing fights for economic, climate, and social justice to the politics of abolition, decolonization, and socialism. He's a revolutionary abolitionist and socialist, and his theory of change is that in the fight for structural reforms through direct action organizing, labor organizing, and electoral organizing, it is possible to create the revolutionary conditions for and the organizational and skill capacity to engage and win in revolutionary struggle. You can find Jason's writing and research at Descent, Spectre, Jacobin, Action Center on Race and Economy, ACRE, and the Cook Center on Social Equity. Before becoming a researcher and writer, Jason was a lead organizer for the SEIU Local 73 and the Black Youth Project 100, BYP 100. When Jason isn't selling his labor for sustenance, you can find him subpar rapping with the group BBU and organizing with the DSA Afro-Socialist and Socialist of Color Caucus, AfroSoc, as well as the Defund CPD campaign in Chicago. And now here's our discussion with Jason Bettis. Hi, Jason. Thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, I actually learned about you from Sharice Burden-Selly, who's been on the show several times as a guest. Like She's an old school guest, um, but she introduced us. And as sad as I, as sad as this is, like I, we wanted to have you on, but I think right now, um, considering everything going on with police brutality, and I guess I should just say policing, right? Because policing in and of itself is inherently um, violent and brutal. But with everything going on, the end of you know the the trial against Derek Chauvin, the continuous murders of children by police, um, and of of black people. Period. I, I feel like having you on as someone who's working on defunding the police and, and abolition movements and whatnot was really important and timely. But unfortunately, as, as I said, this is an ongoing problem. So having you on at any time would have been nice uh, to talk about it because it's just, it's an ever present issue. But, um, but anyway, thank you so much for being here. And uh, I just wanted to start off with you, if you could actually just lay out sort of your, um, I don't know, like your political background, because one of the things that when I was learning a bit about you, I thought was so fascinating was just like your own personal trajectory and how you got into these movements and whatnot. So if you could just talk about what you do and how you ended up doing it uh, for the audience. 
Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, thank you all for your uh, podcast too. It's um, it's it, yeah, it's an amazing podcast. And it was um, I, I remember a time when there was like all these like kind of left or or Marxist or just like radical podcasts coming out, and then there were so few that um, actually you know had like a Black Indigenous people of color perspective and like focused on um, not just you know Black Indigenous people of color like. Um, just like politics, but just like actual like radical traditions and revolutionary movements. So I, I just, um, yeah, super appreciate that um, from you. And um, yeah, my my own trajectory, I guess, you know, it was kind of basic, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I, I grew up working class and middle class on the north, north side of Chicago. And then, um, you know, I started getting in trouble a lot. And, you know, by 15, I dropped out by 16, I was in foster care. And then like by 19, you know, I was like locked up for about 10 months. Um, and I think, you know, throughout that time, um, you know, if, if you live on the North side of Chicago, it's fairly multiracial, you know, it's like white folks, Latinx folks, black folks. And, um, you know, and what I learned at that time was that all peoples do drugs and sell drugs, you know, and um, do dirt and whatever, you know, but, you know, when I, when I, when I started being in foster care and, and locked up, um, that's when I saw that um, it was majority black folks and, you know, at times some Latinx folks and then no white folks, you know, none of the white folks I'd grown up with were there. And so I think that experience just kind of taught me, okay, maybe there's something systemic going on, you know, because I know a lot of people do messed up stuff, but then they seem to be ending up in different places, you know. And um, and so once I got out, you know, I, I I couldn't get a job anywhere because of like felony disenfranchisement. I didn't really even know what felony disenfranchisement was. And um, luckily I just, you know, I was in this just jobs program that like, you know, they help you get a job after you get out, you know? And, um, and luckily they just, you know, I, I wasn't getting like jobs at TJ Maxx, like telemarketer things, really basic pl places. And, and um, the person sent me to ACLU. <laughs> <laughs> and because um, they're they're hiring like an organizing assistant you know and she's like I think they'll do it because like they had you know like a see I think they'll be open to like who you are and your story and things like that and um and I think at the SLU at the time they're going through their like racial white reckoning kind of thing you know <laughs> like of like we don't we have too many white people or whatever and um and that was the first time you know the person who's hiring me was like um and, and it was a black woman who hired me you know and um she was like yeah no like here we don't believe in that it's okay to discriminate against people because of their felony. And I was like, discriminate? Like, I didn't even understand that that was being discriminated against, you know? Um, and that, but that getting that job was, I mean, A, was was a lifesaver. I, I think probably saved me from like, you know, just like going back to like a street life or whatever, you know, like at the time I got the job, I, I was, when I got the phone call, I was literally putting fly because back in the day we used to, I don't know if people still put flyers on cars, you know, you get paid for it because of like social media, or whatever, but I was like putting yeah. flyers on cars. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, and, and that was from like the day, and I got that from like a day labor gig. You know, you, you go there, you leave your halfway house to get there at four o'clock in the morning. They like ship you off to wherever parts of the city, you know? So, um, and I was, you know, and at that point I was like, man, I don't know if I can keep on doing this. I think the minimum wage is like four twenty five an hour or something. And I was just like, this is not the kind of like, this is not the kind of bread I need, you know? And um, so I got that job and it was, I mean, the check was good, but then I think more importantly, it just introduced me into the world of organizing, you know, introduced me to um, like Center for Third World Organizing, introduced me to Southwest Youth Collaborative, 
which was like they were doing this campaign uh, called the Youth First Campaign, which would be like 10% of the city budget always goes to like youth, um, youth programming and youth job programs, you know, no matter what. Um, and then that taught me like, at some level it taught me kind of like the anti-Linsky organizing in terms of maybe anti-Linsky organizing is, is the wrong word, but you know, Linsky organizing was like what the, what, what currently is the class reductionist type of stuff. Like that's what Alinsky was. It was like class reductionist and um, like anti-ideological, you know? And so center for third world organizing was just like, no, we should be, you know, we should be centered in our, in like radical organizing traditions. We should take class. We should take race. We should take um, gender all very seriously when we're doing our organizing. And particularly, they, you know, like their coming of age movement was against like all the pushing back against like um, all the welfare, the anti-welfare bills that, that were going on at the time. And so, um, you know, I got trained in that. And then um, I just kind of had the organizing bug since then. And, um, you know, I just wanted to be like a really good organizer. And, um, you know, luckily, you know, I got hired to do community organizing gigs. Um, you know, I did labor organizing for seven or eight years. And then, um, you know, I did like um, like abolitionist movement organizing, you know, help found BYP 100. Um, and then, you know, now, you know, I do Afro-Socialist, Socialist of Color Caucus in DSA um, and then defund CPD in Chicago, but then like help build out other defund, you know, other defund campaigns across the country, you know, like with like, you know, kind of like a momentum organizing style, but then still like a traditional structure-based organizing style. So, um, yeah, but that's, you know, I guess, yeah, that, 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 that's my story. Can you talk a little bit about Bate Urbano? Because I know you mentioned um, before yeah. that you did some anti-gentrification work, and if I'm not mistaken, that group does that, right? Um, so can you talk a bit about that? And also, um, you know, I know that you're a Puerto Rican descent, you're also a Black man. And if you could talk a bit about kind of navigating both Puerto Rican and African-American spaces in the work you've done and how, what that's looked like for you, especially considering that, you know, like we, we talk a lot about the, the, the kind of rifts or um, I don't know, like conflicts, if you will, between um, Afro-Latinos and African-Americans or like quote unquote immigrant black people and quote unquote native black people. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious to know what that's looked like for you on the ground, especially considering that a lot of the organizing that you were doing was about issues that, you know, was detrimental to like both groups. And while you yourself are sort of straddling um, at least in appearance, but then also with your name and with the, uh, you know, the communities that you were in, you're kind of dealing with both sides, multiple sides of this. So if you could talk a little bit about that, as well as Bate Urbano and, and give us a little info on that as well. Yeah, um, Bate was like, it was like, you know, it, it's connected to the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. And so Puerto Rican Cultural Center obviously has done a lot of work to support like, uh, to support Puerto Rican freedom fighters you know, um, like Puerto Rican revolutionary, like uh, freedom fighters, and um, was like birthed out of the context of trying to support Puerto Rican independence. And, um, and so, you know, the, the Bate was like, we wanted to have just a more of a youth run space, because at the time we had the we had the Abiso Campo school. And, but we wanted a youth run and by youth, you know, we mean like, you know, like um, early teens, all the way up to like 30s, you know, or like our mid 30s, like that that was running that in, like that we could run, um, and that community members felt like they could run because you know you always have that you don't always, but a lot of times you have the dynamic of you know folks who are either more college educated or kind of like in that in between space, 
um, but then wanting to work with and build with folks um, who, you know, I mean, basically like, like hood life is ma mainly what they know, you know, and so um, trying to do that in a way that's actually democratic, that's actually not like fetishizing like e e either side of things and that um, and isn't tokenizing, you know, so um, Bate Urbano was basically we had poetry night on Thursday night, <laughs> we had hip hop on uh, Friday night. And then we had political education on Saturday night. Um, and, um, you know, the folks from the community would run the space itself. You know, um, we had like a little council, like where we'd meet once a week to like run things like to clean the space to make sure like the, the, the programs are running. Um, and then we also um, and a brother named uh, Michael Rodriguez Munez was like one of the lead folks um, who I think he's a sociologist out of Northwestern now. Um, you know, he helped build out then the participatory democracy project, which was then, um, you know, a traditional like door knocking operation that was, but it was, you know, it was to do, you know, more of like a different form of, of electoral organizing more in like the tradition of like what cooperation Jackson, like, like for a while did in terms of wanting to make sure that like people are like, have their services met. Um, can organize around other projects outside of just like strictly like, you know, like the Democrat Democratic Party like type organizing, you know. Um, so that was the that was the idea of, of, of Bate Urbano. And I think at least for me, the Puerto Cultural Center was the first. It was my experience with, you know, and at the time I, my um, my mentor was Jose Lopez, who's, um, you know, brothers of Oscar Lopez, who's um, um, who's like who's putting political prisoner and um you know and he really pushed me on the idea that like any like even any kind of like revolutionary strategy <laughs> needs to have some semblance of electoral strategy it has to you know and um and it has to like think through that and it has to move through that that like um that that, that we can't just rely on just like a non-electoral approach or just an insurrectionary approach and you, you kind of always just like broke that down in me like you have to have labor you have to have electoral you have to have direct action and then you have to have some level of, of direct services but then still you know grounded in some level of like a, a revolutionary or a radical or progressive ideology and praxis so um because before then i was like you know reading tons of panther books reading tons of young lords books and i was like you know <laughs> electoral politics is bullshit why are we doing this and this thing and everything and so and, you know, he could walk me through every political prisoner, every Puerto Rican political prisoner, and explain how that connected to an electoral strategy, right? He could walk me through how the bombing of Vaviak is connected to. Now, you still had to have a direct action component. You still had to have a bunch of other things. But that, like, how these these things important in Puerto Rican politics connected directly to having some semblance of an electoral strategy. So, um yeah, that was that, that 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 was probably a pretty big moment for me on on that level. On the level of you know around race um, and nationality, you know, I think it was you know, you know, the, the, there were some real like hardcore moments where it was just like you know like non-black Puerto Rican folks saying you know saying nigga like it like it ain't nothing you know and being like yo like that's got to stop you know and folks who are either black Puerto Rican or folks who are just who are just black folks being like no nah, that's not cool you know like there was a moment where folks were like oh well we, we should knock on black doors folks because like we're here to like talk to and build with Puerto Rican folks and like you know some of us had to push back and be like no that's not cool at all you know like that's not um so it was definitely a lot of moments where you would have to deal with anti-blackness in that kind of way 
Um, and and sometimes not it's anti-blackness. It's just like I, I don't know. Maybe it is anti-blackness, but it's just like this. Um, I don't know if misunderstanding is the right word, but you know, you just you just had to push back on it a lot of times. Um, and I think you know, at a, at a certain level, at least for myself, you know, I was just like, you know, I just don't want to be in a place where I have to like justify myself or like you know justify like the politics of um of black liberation and having to explain it like that and i think the more i the more you learn that like oh there's a whole bunch of black folks in puerto rico or black folks who are puerto rican who feel this way also you know um i felt less you know at least for myself i felt less estranged from that and just like letting myself be okay with like you know my job is to focus on black folks you know locally and globally and um and black liberation on that level and that like you know i believe that then that will connect in a meaningful way to like puerto rican struggle and like um and puerto rican liberation also you know that's interesting because like i said there have been um i think sometimes there's a there's a moment of like talking past one another and i even think like lately i've been listening a lot to um i've been really getting into frank wilderson's work on afro pessimism mm. um but you know one of the criticisms that i have of some of his commentary although i've certainly can empathize with it is he seems to sort of foreclose on um uh you know cross cultural organizing in some ways. Um, and even sometimes it feels like, I mean, or, or I shouldn't say he forecloses on it, but he's basically just like, it's not going to work. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like you can try all that. That's nice. That's cute, whatever. But it's just a stopgap measure. And at the end of the day, like um, anti-Blackness is sort of the rubric around which all these other groups operate to define themselves and, and exist. Um, it's like their lifeblood. And I think that, you know, in some ways, um, as, as salient and I think like very identifiable a lot of his commentary is I think what ends up falling out of the bottom of it is like how if you can like deprogram the white supremacy from these other groups if you can work toward that there may be some opportunity there for for actual solidarity and I think that some of his work is like so hard hitting and so realism based. It's like, no, that's not gonna happen, but that's cute, you know? Um, so I appreciate that you were kind of, you were working through those those issues on your own and kind of trying to recognize the ways that, you know, different communities were, were engaging in anti-Blackness, but how there was also an opening through which you yourself fit in um, not with the anti-blackness, but with the organizing um, that you could make way, you know, with different groups. Um, and as I said, yourself sort of on the ethnic lines, at least straddling multiple groups, um, especially in a place like Chicago. Um, and that makes me think as a segue, of course, of your work with DSA. So I know you mentioned that you you work with or you continue to work with Afrosoc. And I've talked to and met um, a lot of people, I've even done an event for uh, Afrosoc, and I really appreciate a lot of the work they do. And I also very much recognize that they are constantly dealing with a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> like, so many people are very negative about them, including people who claim to be their comrades. Um, so I was wondering if you could also talk a bit about that and what it's been like, um, you know, organizing within greater DSA. Um, and we can talk a little bit about a little bit more about the abolition stuff in a moment. Um, so I just mean, generally speaking, right? Um, what's been your organizing experience with them, um, especially because you have so many people who are new to organizing um, that are coming in through DSA and approaching it through that organization. But then even more particularly, what has your experience been organizing through AfroSoc um, 
and and trying to do as you said some electoral outreach alongside the organizing and dealing with um i don't know like like drama from all sides and like arrows coming from all directions (laughs) yeah yeah um no yeah i I appreciate that um oh and and just on the frank piece you know i think i mean because i have a lot of homies who are just like how are you like like an afro pessimist and i don't you know i don't take on Afro-pessimism as like an identity, you know, but like, I, I believe it's, it's really important scholarship that everyone should care about and not dismiss. Um, and I, and I feel like, you know, I think while I was pulled to it too, it was like the first scholarship that I read that actually spoke to my experiences, especially um, just as like most of my kind of like most of my foundational racist experiences happen from other people of color, right? Ha- happened from non-Black Latinx folks, you know, um, and non-Black Puerto Rican folks in particular. And at least for me, Afro-pessimism was the first thing to really kind of speak to that, give me a theoretical frame for it and an understanding for it, you know, like for sure. Um, you know, I think Frank, just like a lot of scholars usually do, like what some, when, just because something is like epistemically true, you know, or true at the level of ontology or theory doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, strategically, you know, or, or empirically true in terms of like, how do you actually build an organizing project, you know? And um, that's, you know, that, that that's always been my, my difference on it. And solidarity is, I mean, just like with class, you know, like, you know, we want to move from a class in and of itself, like the class that's made by like our working relations to a class for itself, which is, uh, you know, a radical political class that can fight for its end, for, for its ends. And, you know, I look at it the same way with like stuff in regards to like, you know, in, in, in regards to, in, in regards to race, you know, like just because, um, you know, we're, we are going to have conflict or antagonisms between each other, but the point of solidarity is to recognize that, know that we're not necessarily seeing eye to eye and that we might even do like fucked up stuff to each other, but then be able to figure out ways to meaningfully organize. Like, I don't believe in solidarity that assumes that like, you know, I have to have the right answer or say all the right things in A, B, or C. It just, it just means that, um, you know, I'm willing to, you know, be vulnerable and do the work in order to like make the collaboration effective, you know, and, and then of course be accountable if I do like messed up or fucked up stuff, you know? And so, um, but, and I mean, for DSA, that's, you know, I think that's kind of like the, the spirit I walked into DSA with. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I think there's like a certain amount of folks who kind of look to like their political organizing to be kind of like their home, you know, and like their safe, their safe place. Um, and for sure, it can be your political home, but I, I think it's a political home. It's not necessarily a therapeutic home, you know, and um, and so that's that's how I walked into DSA with. And, you know, and I was interested just in being in a much bigger organization, you know, like, you know, DSA is around 100,000 folks and like with at least 30,000 people who are active, you know, in the work. And um, and that part was exciting to me and it still is exciting to me. Um you know, DSA at the level of, um, in terms of kind of like what you read about in books of like kind of big organizations, like like the Communist Party or like, you know, earlier parties back in the, you know, back in the day is, or even NAACP at its height is, that's how DSA is, you know, like that's how active it is in terms of, and it's mostly volunteer run, it's not staff run, you know, it's dues run, it's not like funders driven. Um, so that part is, 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 is amazing actually. Um, and then the different political caucuses, right. You have like communist caucuses, you have, um, you know, people who are more electoralist, people who are more like anarchists, you know, you know, it's all different types of varieties 
which, which I appreciate too. Um, you know, it's, it's issue, it's problem is, um, is the amount of white people it has, you know, and the amount of white people it has who think they know everything. Um, so, um, and you know, that, that part is, um, I don't know if it's tiring, you know, I, I, I think the, the nice thing about DSA versus other organizing things I've been in that are multiracial, let's say labor, is that you have genuine avenues to win real power and, and to control the organization and, and put it in a direction you want to. So, you know, with which is then explains the birth of Afrosoc Caucus and with Afrosoc Caucus, you know, we could make sure reparations was front and center. We can make sure that there was like a real anti-imperial, not real, but an anti-imperialism committee that actually reflects um, the political traditions that come from the global South and perspectives of the global South, you know? Um, and, you know, then that, that I th you know, I, I think that matters. And I think that no matter what, when we're trying to, you know, make sure an organization like has a genuine racial justice project has a genuine um is genuinely committed to like multiracial organizing um you know different people have different approaches to that and i think you know you should have some semblance of a democratic system and a and a political process to win that political argument you know i think in my time in other organizations that were more nonprofit based or like more traditional nonprofit based um you know, there's not really the, those avenues and it's really staff driven. And and then you still have like the fights around people who like, let's say, don't want to do any electoral stuff or who only want to do um, or want, only want to do electoral stuff or understand abolition in this way or abolition in that way. And there's no democratic space to like deliberate what those differences are and then still come to a decision. And also like for people to like form different caucuses and have those fights and then have to convince their members and their peers of like, you know, I'm, you know, like, I think we should follow this way or that way. Um, and so I appreciate that part of, of DSA. And I appreciate that part of like what we've been able to do with AfroSoc in terms of like, you know, making sure, you know, you know, our, our, you know, the black members in DSA, the indigenous and people of color members of DSA aren't like, you know, aren't taken over by like fuck shit from white folks, you know? And so um, I definitely sympathize with people who are like, hey, I don't want to deal with that. And, you know, for everybody that, that that's not their ministry, you know, but, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm also glad that, you know, we don't do, you know, kind of like the surge, you know, like the surge kind of aspect of it, of like, you know, white people, you got to teach yourselves this or, you know, or, or even like the, who's that dude who does all that anti-racism stuff, the Ibrahim, whatever. Ibrahim X. Kendi. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the, you know, like we don't, we don't walk into it like we we need to explain y'all what anti you know, we don't walk in with that energy too. We're just like, you know, it's like, this is a political fight. We got the votes. We about to make this happen. We'll watch the bam, you know, like it's, it, it's based on that, you know, so it's not like this kind of managerial or like this, like, pedagogy like if we just get the right pedagogy you know you know like no that that's not what we are interested in and fighting on and you know and I, I think sometimes people don't quite realize like how many black people DSA has you know like you know it's like it, it's it's around you know we don't have official numbers right but it's like around 8,000 10,000 black folks right which is pretty big for even any other you know um, type of organization so um, if you organize yourselves, you know, you get some level of, of clarity how you want to move forward. Um, understanding that we all have different political tendencies and political beliefs, you know, like you have, you have the black folks who somehow always agree with 
you know, all the class reductionist white socialists, you know, and who get mad at Afrosoc for, you know, making a statement against anti-blackness. And then you have some black folks who feel like we're not, you know, we're not going hard enough and that we need to be, you know, maybe more Maoist about it or more Pan-Africanist about it or whatever, you know. And so, you know, you're trying to always figure that out, but you do it democratically and politically. And then I think it, to me, for some people makes folks, folk, to me, it's far healthier than um, I think some of the, the the organizing that that I was involved in, like post Ferguson, or even at the time in like with with Bate Rabano and in those kind of spaces where, um, you know, it's very much like you have to follow one line or you're trying to figure out one political line, and then that is the line, and then that's how we get free. That kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I definitely have some more questions about the uh, the <laughs> opponents to Aversock that I'll ask you about a little bit later. Um, but Richard, I wanted to get you in to see if you had any questions for Jason thus far. I, I certainly share some of the curiosities that you're alluding to, but uh, I guess, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that I was curious about from what I had heard is you mentioned the electoral aspect and some of the things that I read in some of the pieces that we uh, looked over before uh, recording was about local organizing and that aspect of a look, the electoral kind of branch of this multi-pronged strategy that you describe. And I was curious uh, if you could speak a bit more about how, because uh, I think when people think of electoralism, they're often thinking of the presidency in other national positions, uh, how kind of the local aspect uh, can be a powerful tool, both towards specifically abolition defunding, but also uh, towards political organizing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at least for me, especially when you're getting, you know, when we have these kind of movement moments, um, you get so many people in um, and there's, kind of like very few avenues where you can have a good trained disciplined organizing program where people can get a lot of good basic organizing skills like how do you list build how do you have a good door knocking conversation um how do you know when you're at a low point in a campaign a high point a midpoint how do you know when you need to start escalating in terms of how you're canvassing or bringing people out for it? like um electoral campaigns just as like um you know if you unfortunately i'm really into sports right so but it's 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 the contained thing that allows you to know if you won or you lost and like what your progress is unlike sometimes maybe more like direct action campaigns um or like movement moment kind of campaigns which are the ebb and flow and at times it's really hard to tell if you've won or lost or like you know there's not as tight of a schedule so at least on that level electoral campaigns are really like good like organizing training programs you know on the ground um I think on an, on the ideological level and policy level, um, you know, I think we have the benefit of a lot, and especially in like more bluer areas, usually they don't have partisan election, um, partisan elections, and um, and also too, unfortunately, you know, not unfortunately, but you know, um, you know, Democrats believe in voter suppression just just, just as much as Republicans, but just in different ways, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so um, and so that is, um, you know, it's an opportunity for folks to. I think understand the power of the ballot box if it's used towards radical ends. I think a lot of times people, you know, do the critique, the rifle critique of black faces in high places and that didn't work and da da da. And, and I think that critique is correct. I think what it misses is, is that like it was a strategy based on the idea that um, you wouldn't have, you know, I think with the where black politics was at that time, especially like post 68 was still that if you said black power or if you said, 
you know, I was a black person running this day. And the other thing, you you had to have fairly radical positions, right? The black, the, the congressional black caucus in the in the 70s is to the left of what Bernie Sanders is now, right? So, um, and obviously that that faded with like the time of neoliberalism. So I think if you have an explicitly like socialist running, right, or like let's say an abolitionist running, or even someone who's like, let's say they're, they said their thing is like decolonization or whatever, right? I think you can have radical politics and people running as radicals as we've done in Chicago, right? We had um, we had six explicit socialists who ran, and then one of them got kicked out of, of uh, out of DSA in the Socialist Caucus because they voted with the mayor, and like they're doing their, you know, they're doing the thing that politicians do, right? So, um, but you can have that space to run folks who have an explicit radical politics um, and are dedicated to radical politics, and then are less, and in my opinion, I think have um the 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 institutional ability to not have to be dependent on even like you know kind of progressive world war and world type type politi- uh, type democratic politics and can um build their own political operations so in chicago most of our socialist aldermen have uh, things called independent political op- um, organizations ipos um and that's who like those elected officials are accountable to um and that's how they're able to like to build out their base um and, and the power that we need now, now that's not to say it's all um you know for the most part dsa and other radical groups we don't have we have some power to hold them accountable but we can't there is going to be that power imbalance and i don't think we should be um i yeah, I don't think we should run from that, right? We should say, like, you know, th- this is is a risky thing, and we'll see where it goes, you know. But you know, at least for me, I'm, like, my theory of change runs that if we're able to get more explicitly radicals, right, people who either claim like, hey, I'm a socialist, hey, I'm an abolitionist, and then are attached to said socialist or whatever radical organization, right? Um, similar to the woman in in, in Seattle, um, then. I think we can start building out the conditions that made something like the New Deal and, you know, like, um, you know, like, and, and the organizing ace of Philip Randolph uh, did possible because those were moments where we also had a very different electoral map where there was dozens of independent parties or independent factions who were running for office too, um, both nationally and locally. Um, beyond that, you know, I don't know what it means or doesn't mean at ele- at, at the at the federal level in terms of like presidential level, you know, um, you know, I, I don't have that many answers for us. I, I just think that, you know, getting more socialists elected, getting more radicals elected at a local um, and state level and even federal level, like not non-presidential, I think um, gives us better power when we're trying to do labor organizing, when we're trying to do direct action organizing, when we're trying to do mutual aid work or building out alternatives. But I think we should also, you know, listen to the lessons from Jackson, you know, and like um, what Cooperation Jackson says and what Kali says in terms of the times to run folks, the times not to run folks. Um, what does it mean when you want to be managing austerity or not managing austerity, you know? And, um, you know, and I think especially the lesson that Kali said that like, you know, they shouldn't have ran a mayor, they should have just ran for folks for council seats, um, I think is a good lesson, especially in a time of austerity. You know, you don't want to be the one managing austerity because there's no good choices to make um and even someone like mike davis says that so but but i I think i'll also say electoral organizing i feel like has brought more folks in the left and more like black folks latinx folks into the left um and into a more um and into a left that doesn't fall then into like ultra radicalism of like you know have to be more radical than the next person and also one that that 
that actually makes sense to people that is of black and working class folks. Like we have someone like Jeanette Taylor um, on in the 20th Ward on the South Side um, who, you know, like, I mean, these are, these aren't just folks who are just like, um, these aren't like the usual group of folks who like you think would say that they're socialist or that they're leftists or whatever, you know, and, 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 and when they first came into this, didn't identify as that, um, but, but grew into that. And that's the kind of folks that, that's the kind of organizing we want to do. We just don't want people who are self-identified radicals or socialists or communists to be in this work. We want to grow, um, you know, we want to grow that base and, 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 and grow that out for folks. No, thank you for that. And I think uh, the point that you make about how electoral politics has often been a way to get a lot of people into it and then having an organization where you can help build and understand and learn the skills of organizing the types of things that you're talking about at the local level is a critical component of that. And so while I find myself uh, generally skeptical of the electoral landscape, uh, broadly speaking, uh, I can see the, the argument you're making there. And I think it's very valuable one that those that would find themselves more skeptical of electoralism like myself, I think should value. Yeah. And, and, and to like the, you know, cause there's this thing, cause I talked to, you know, cause I have some friends in like black Alliance, you know, and they're like, you know, and, and, and they on some like, you know, fuck all that shit, which, which is rightfully so. And I think, you know, a lot of things that people started doing around Biden was like, well, if he doesn't do it, we'll hold him accountable. And it's just like, we have no, we don't have any power to hold him accountable. Like we should not <laughs> that to people. Like we shouldn't even be saying it like that it's harm reduction, right? Like at best, all we can just say that is that it's not Trump and that's not, and we should be like, that's not a great argument. You know, like we should, you know, like it shouldn't be, you know, um, and, and I mean, for DSA, we didn't endorse Biden and, and, and we wouldn't, even though some people were pushing for that oddly. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes like, um, you know, electoral leftist folks, you know, like we just kind of push that like a little bit too much. And 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 to be clear though, I'm I'm always on the direct action side first and foremost. I believe direct action, disruptive power, um, gives like animates all, all those things. It's just that sometimes it's it's episodic and it has ups and downs. And so we need something that kind of gets us through like the lean times. And I um in terms of like a training program and a good regimen uh, program. And so, and I think electoral organizing allows that while allowing for, you know, at times substantial wins and then also preventing substantial losses. And like by wins is like, I think, you know, like the defund work that happened in in Austin, the defund work that happened in Seattle. I I don't understand how that happens without having um, explicit like radical and progressive electoral organizing at the time so that then, you know, you could get the, the type of cuts um, in, in policing and then the type of investments in community programs that, that you got. Um, yeah, that wasn't just all disruption, you know. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, emotionally, I find myself in the, you know, fuck all that camp, but then also strategically, <laughs> I see the value. And so, like, I try, <laughs> you know, and it, it, like you mentioned, some of the kind of the frustration I think Wendy wanted to talk about too, uh, but when working in those organizational spaces with some of the folks that are, you, as you mentioned, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so I'll, I'll, I'll pass that to Wendy. I think. All right, yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a perfect segue. Thanks, guys. Um, so I want to get into a lot of stuff that you talked about. So I was like taking notes furiously because I didn't want to forget my memory is really weak. So I didn't want to forget uh, to touch on it later. 
I do want to talk about Chicago politics a lot, uh, especially with regard to policing and the mayors in both mm-hmm. the last two cases just yeah. being shit-tastic yeah. on it, um, but expectedly so, I think. But then uh, we'll get to that later. I also want to get to abolition work, obviously, and defund. But I also, um, first and foremost, just want to handle um, a bit of stuff on the gossip circuit <laughs> and try to figure out what happened. Um, and when I say go- gossip circuit, I'm, I'm joking and just referring to, like, DSA drama. but. Um, You know, I remember in 2020, one of the big things that I heard about, at least sort of through the grapevine, was that there was some tensions, there were tensions with regard to Afrosoc and some of the demands that you all had raised with regard to like, you know, Bernie Sanders or any presidential candidate that you all were going to endorse. You had a list of demands. Um, You can, you know, obviously work through clarifying the names of things and whatnot, if you wish. Uh, But I recall that reparations is one of the concerns mm-hmm. on the list or demands on the list. Um, and you had several, you know, you all had several others as well that Bernie Sanders didn't necessarily meet. And yet the DSA was pushed seemingly and seemingly ignored some of those demands um, in order to endorse him, I would argue a bit prematurely. Um, I could be wrong though. So I'm curious if you could talk about that episode, if you had any sort of insight on on what happened there. And then also just like, some of the challenges um, that, because I know you mentioned, you know, you mentioned earlier that like some white people in DSA are on some fuck shit and that's totally legitimate. Um, but I'm also, because you've written about this, I'm also curious to know your thoughts on, you know, what I would <laughs> jokingly say, are there black indigenous and people of color allies in that struggle against what seems like um, any semblance of acknowledgement or um, try attempts to, to, uh, eradicate racism. Um, so if you could talk a bit about that and, and what some of the challenges are there as well, and then I'll flip into talking about the really deep stuff um, that we had you want to talk about in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think actually it was the, it was that letter about Bernie that Afrosoc sent that then said, like, let me get serious about DSA and Afrosoc, because I think at, the, at first I was on the fence about DSA, you know, because I went to like my first DSA meeting and it was, um, and it was all, you know, it was like 95% white folks, you know, which is jarring, you know, it's jarring to be like in a city like Chicago and like, it's hard, you know, it's really hard to have any sort of progressive or leftist space in the city of Chicago that, 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 that's that white, you know, <laughs> like you have to go out of your way. Cause it's like a city, you know, it's not like you're in some sort of farm town or whatever, you know, where, where it might be, you know, more, more white folks and stuff like that. Well, wait, but, sorry, let me interrupt you really quick. My bad. Where did yeah. they hold the meetings? Because the issue here in Baltimore, cause they have the same problem here in Baltimore. It's like okay. Baltimore is like 990% black. And then the, right. <laughs> the DSA is very yeah. white, but they hold their meetings up at Hopkins and they don't hold them in, you know, West Baltimore and, or in the quote unquote hood. So I'm yeah. curious to know if they also, if they have like a, a spatial or geographic issue that they're working with in their DSA too. Well, yeah, they definitely have a geographic issue in terms of like, um, yeah, yeah, it being more North side-ish. Um, but like the, the, where we meet is like in the center of the city, you know, by downtown, but like um, in like the union, like we have like a union kind of corridor. And we're at the United um, Electrical um, Union Hall. Um, So, I mean, I think it's part, I mean, I think, 
honestly, if we had ours in the south side of Chicago, like whatever, wherever, it would still be, I think, that many white. Well, may, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. But no, because no, we've had we, we've had ones right in Bronzeville. We've had uh, DSA meetings in Bronzeville because it's the south the south side chapter branch, and it's still like way too many white folks. Um, it's just DSA itself, you know. <laughs> that's what it is. Um, and um, so you know that threw me off, you know, and I was just like, I don't know if I want to deal with just that that much white nonsense. Um, but then after seeing that letter, I was like, okay, this is dope, you know, and, um, you know, and the letter was like reparations, but then also race, um, race specific policies, right? Um, specifically racial justice policies and not just dressing up your like, um, your other policies as like, uh, as like the racial justice policies, right? Um, and, um, you know, there was a faction of folks who were really against it. Um, the, the MPC, our National Political Committee still voted yes to, uh, for it um to to do the endorsement and what we're we we weren't like saying like you know sanders you need to do every single one of these things it's but it was just like if you want to endorse me you need to have a conversation about this and be moved on some of it you know and um there was within the leadership at the time there was no desire to do that you know um and so um, you know, we lost that political fight. Um, I think what came about of it was like the the nat like the real nationalizing of um, AfroSoc, you know, and then um, an AfroSoc convention, and um, you know, we kind of have the AfroSoc that we have today from that moment. Um, I mean, I think the next go round when a fight like that happens, I think we'll be in a better position to win it, and I think we've moved a lot of our comrades on that you know um but i guess you never know until the moment happens right how much power you actually have when, when the vote comes down so um yeah i mean and you know that there is folks in dsa who believe that we um that we are you know i guess like a sectarian caucus and that like we're like that we're you know preventing people of color from like understanding how great DSA is or like not bringing people into DSA or, you know, like, it, it, you know, you just, you hear a lot of weird stuff from folks about it. Um, and, you know, and I think there's kind of like a, a politics or a preference of like folks who just want to focus in on all that. And I'm just like, you know, I really don't care, you know, like I, you know, I, I see what the work is that we do, you know, I see folks who come into AfroSoc and then come go into DSA and then you know help build out dsa into something better so that that it's it's a genuine like you know it's, it's a genuine socialist space that takes bipoc um political orientation seriously and like and moves on those you know like that's i think the story of how defund and abolition work got so important within dsa um and you know we're we're gonna always have those fights we're in the middle of that kind of political fight but every kind of genuine moment when kind of like the class reductionist faction can, you know, really, really put its teeth down and try to like either eliminate us, like, you know, like Adolf Reed, like came out against our caucus, you know, and like, you know, went on several podcasts saying that we we're going to be the downfall of DSA, but then the DSA general membership voted for yes to our caucus. Um, Adolf Reed tried to do a talk being like, you know, race doesn't matter. We shouldn't focus on racial disparities. Like, like right after George Floyd got killed, you know, and like, you know, we said that like we don't want Adolf Reed talking in our organization anymore, especially having a national platform on our organization. Um, and 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 all we said was, hey, we want to debate Adolf Reed, and he said no to that. And then like Adolf Reed stopped speaking. And they try to paint it into like that that we wouldn't let him speak or whatever. But I mean, I think at some level, like we're winning these political fights. 
Um, I'm obviously sympathetic to folks who say, well, you shouldn't even have to have those political fights in the first place. I hear that. Um, you know, um, you know, maybe if Adolf Reed was white, then maybe like I would maybe look at it differently. <laughs> but, um, but you know, like um, I, you know, I, I think a lot of the things that we see with racism, with sexism, with any of these kind of things that happen within organizations, you know, outside of, of course, like, you know, very real instances of, you know, um, either like, you know, direct racial, like, like direct racial abuse or for sure, like, um, you know, sexual violence, right. Things like that. But in terms of like, um, more of its political ma manifestations, what people call microaggressions manifestations, you know, I, I think need political solutions in terms of debating, um, bringing other people onto your side and then like winning that fight, that political fight, like we did with, um, having, you know, read, not, not speak at, um, at an event, you know? So. Yeah. I, I remember when that was happening, a lot of people framed, well, not a lot of people, but people in the very vocal, but like super loud, but often wrong, um, online left, uh, media, they were very negative about it and basically framed it as like a, a case of cancel culture, which is yeah. another obsession of theirs that's like, yes. it's just, it's just right wing, like ideological laundering. I mean, there's, there's no other way to put it. It's definitely yeah. something that's straight out of the right wing and that yes. because they tend to engage a lot of right wing thinkers um, themselves, or even <laughs> some of them are arguably wolves in sheep's clothing themselves. Um, you know, they, they launder these ideas and, and bring them to the left and try to legitimize them and then sometimes try to frame them as left. Uh, like when people say, oh, no, but, you know, like being against Palestinian activists and whatnot is cancel culture. And it's like, no, honey, that's capitalism. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's colonialism. Like, what are you right, talking right. about? You know, what are you talking Like, that means yeah. that you're missing yeah. the forest for the trees if you think cancel culture is the problem and not capitalism and imperialism and whatnot but anyway that aside um i think that still sort of opens up the space to talk a lot about the abolition work because that's another area that i've seen a lot of online leftists and particularly white leftists that are vocal in these spaces fail um there has been from the jump i mean i remember last year there was a constant nitpicking about Oh, these mm -hmm. people aren't protesting right, or they're not talking about the class mm -hmm. enough, or this. I'm like, why don't you get in the streets with them then? Instead of right. like sitting behind your computers or whatever, right. why don't you go? Pro why don't you go talk to some of them? Because yeah. you know they're they're afraid of black people. Um, they're afraid to touch you know issues that affect black people. Um, and there's a certain um, chauvinism or myopia around issues that affect black people that are directly tied i would argue and many others before me have argued that are also tied to economic issues I and mean, police brutality is also an economic issue um and you know it's it's about uh foreclosing corralling and protecting private property and the people who are its its possessors you know what i mean like there's there's no other way around this um and there's also obviously a racist component in the united states and among many other countries right um, so I think what's odd is that they just kind of abdicated their responsibility to, to, I would argue, a large portion of the Black community that deals with these issues on a, day, a regular basis and Indigenous and Latino people as well. When I say Black, I'm, in this case, I'm meaning African-American, but certainly from other communities too. Um, so I, I just, you know, that part was frustrating to watch. And it continues into the present. So a full year after 
the George Floyd protests, um, there's still so much hand-wringing over, well, should we call it abolition? Should we call it defund? Defund doesn't work. That's going to scare away people. And I'm like, if you're afraid of frightening capitalists, you probably shouldn't be a socialist. <laughs> like you might want to rethink your political ideology if you're afraid of offending people with politics that will help people. You know what I'm saying? It just, it just doesn't make any sense. And that seems to have animated so much of this nonsense. I hear so much coming up, like it doesn't poll well. Well, nor did Medicare for all until you worked toward advocacy on it, right? <laughs> right, right, um, right nor right. did so many other things, nor did, yeah. you know, not going into the Vietnam War or going into Iraq or feeling like any sort of issue that you want to change people's minds on, you have yeah. to work toward. I mean, we're, we're going up against a hyper-capitalist system and hundreds of years of brainwashing on so many issues, right? So of course, people aren't going to embrace it right away. But you have to expose people to things and you have to talk to them and you have to explain that should you know undermine from what i'm from the way i understand left politics that's like a crucial part of it um so in in recognizing that reluctance um how did you you know first come upon um abolitionist theory i know you mentioned some interest in afro-pessimism things like that and a lot of people who are afro-pessimists are also they also happen to be um abolitionists and so i'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that on you know your entree into that that set of uh politics and then also just like how how you think that um people who are abolitionists should should go forward in in working to convince people or to have people understand you know how the system operates especially if they themselves are not reflected as its victims at least in the same way that we're used to seeing you know black and latin like black people period in this country um being being terrorized by the state right if you don't see yourself being terrorized every day all day long on, on via social media and the television what how do you get those people to be invested in in abolition and, and yeah so if you could you explain that a bit and explain what abolition is abolitionism is how you found your way into it and how we can work towards getting more people to recognize its validity and, and salience in the society yeah um yeah you know for, for first just in terms of like the the like the small group that's very loud online that then somehow represents all of i think socialism and like or certainly with dsa is i think you know that's always the thing that surprised me the most about dsa it's just like it is what most people think it is it's just a small online group and you know whenever they try to have sway within dsa you know proper um for the most part it fails you know like they don't and, and and part of usually why then they usually either leave dsa or they're not like involved in dsa like the chapo folks and e even like a lot of the folks who are like like affiliated with just kind of like that that um that aspect of it they don't they don't stay because you know we are truly like a democratic deliberative organization and you have to like win the fight amongst folks on that and, and you can even see that with folks like megan day right now trying to push back on defund and abolition and um you know, and it's folks from DSA lining her up also, you know, I mean, it's black folks and other folks lining her up, but it's, 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 it's folks in DSA being like, nah, that ain't it. And, um, you know, like when it comes to like voting on what, what we're going to do and how we're going to move forward, you know, defund and abolition stuff wins and has won even before this, like this big moment for abolition, right? Even one in 2017 when, 
you know, yeah, motherfuckers in DSA who are arguing it's okay for cops to be in DSA, you know, that type of shit. So, um, and, and luckily that, that, that vote lost. So, I mean, I think, um, I, you know, for me, I came to abolition just, I think because of my time be, being incarcerated, doing like, you know, various like mass, like, you know, anti-mass incarceration work. Um, and, you know, I think being introduced to the ideas of George Jackson, Angela Davis, Joy James, um, and then of course, Miriam Kaba, you know, luckily, you know, I got to be in the same city as Miriam Kaba, you know, I got to be, you know, there when we're doing, we started, we charged genocide when we were, um, doing the reparations work for the, the prison, for the, um, the torture survivors, you know, the John Birch torture survivors. So, um, who were made to do false confessions and, um, and so, and I think how I understood it, how it was explained to me, you know, um, and then also like, you know, Kathy Cohen, Barbara Ransby, Beth Ritchie, um, was just that this is a continuation of the political tradition that started with us of like abolition, not abolition in terms of like the liberal interpretation of abolition, but abolition in terms of like the things that like folks in Haiti did, you know, in order to get free from slavery. Um, the things that we did as black people in, in the Americas or in, you know, like in the Americas, you know, like in the broadest sense in order to get free. And that my understanding of it is, is that, you know, there's kind of like the black radical tradition as defined by, you know, Cedric Robinson. Um, but even for that, you know, I, I, you know, to me, that's still a little like too ontological to a she kind of falls into a cosmology, which I'm not against cosmology. I'm a spiritual person. Um, you know, I wake up, I pray at night, I pray, I go to like, you know, I have, I have like, I, I have a spiritual program I'm a part of and all that in community. But, um, you know, I identify the black radical tradition far more as like the things that black people did in order to get free against slavery versus like the ideologies and cosmologies behind them. Um, and, and to me, then that is um, our own radical tradition, you know, that um, that I think complements and intersects us with socialism and decolonization, anti-colonial struggles, and for sure is based on, um, you know, um, feminist, feminist and queer politics, but um, is, you know, is its own political project. And, um, and I think from there, you know, I just, you know, with doing the work with BYP 100, it was just figuring out how to build that out in terms of like an actual mass movement organizations that can take on police power directly. You know, I think before, especially before the post Ferguson moment, a lot of a police accountability work would still just like target like elected officials and it didn't like target um, like police stations, um, jails, uh, prisons, you know? And so it was just like the idea of like, no, we need to start shutting down police stations. We need to start surrounding police cars. We need to start de-arresting folks like when we're at protests. Um, and it was just a different orientation of like making not police accountability, the, the, the object, you know, the thing to go after, but police themselves, the thing to go after. And that that's the problem of like the force that's curtailing working class folks, especially working class black folks ability to organize um, and and to sustain the organizing too, right? Is the size and scope of 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 the police force that we have in our in this country, um, and I think globally also that that that's what the police is there for. I mean, they're there for multiple different things, but they're you know paradigmatically there in order to curtail leftist, radical, and revolutionary, and even progressive projects 
to um, that seek emancipation, right? So they, they, you know, police serve, you know, the, the, um, the narrating voice in something like Selma, right, which is still like a liberal kind of piece and, you know, like presents itself as kind of like this, like, liberal progressive thing, not certainly not radical revolutionary. Um, and the groups involved at that time weren't necessarily in their radical revolutionary phase yet. SNCC was beginning to, but um, they were still, the main narrator is the FBI, you know? Um, and um, that's the force that we have to take on if we want to be able to have the space needed in order to organize in the ways that, that we need to in order to get, you know, get the, the level of freedom that we want, whether your vision is socialism, anarchism, um, communism, you know, whatever your, 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 your ideological orientation is. And so that's, I think that's what brought me to abolition. Um, when people say that, you know, it's kind of odd or, you know, like the critiques of like, well, if, if, you know, I mean, people say that about socialism, right. And, and, and by people, usually I'm referring to like black folks, like black folks say that about socialism also. Um, and that's fine. You know, like my job as an abolitionist is to, meet people where they're at, but then still be clear about like what my principles and what my politics are and say and show them that like um that 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 I have like a, a valid theory of change and approach to a new society that that they, they can see themselves in. And even if they don't agree with me, they'll they'll still want to ride along on part of the programs and the things that that I'm saying, right? Like that's what Stokely was doing in relation to Fannie Lou Hamer. You know, like that's what um all good organizers do. Um and yeah, I mean I think I feel like when, especially like when it's coming from kind of like more of like the white left or, um, and the white socialist left of like, you know, people to fund, associate defund with abolition too much. I was just like, well, they're saying the same thing about Sanders and, you know, I'm a Sanders person, you know, like they're saying the same thing about Sanders, like, especially the Warren folks, like, would that mean then, then Sanders should stop saying he's a socialist, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, no, like no one would ever say that, that it's, it's important to like have these kind of ideological interventions because, usually that's the only way we can speak against capitalism in, in really explicit ways, you know, is, is through our, our, our radical politics, but try and not make it like cult-like and like dogmatic, you know? And so, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I mean, you said it, you, you, you said it better than even I have. It's just like, you know, just, you know, you know, join the organizations and just do the work, you know, and, and, and all, all types of organizations are doing it, like Working Families Party, Democratic Socialists of America, obviously Movement for Black Lives. Um, you know, there's definitely anarchist organizations, like there's tons of folks doing like abolitionist um, or defund work that you can join and make it happen and figure it out. Um, you know, it's, it's not that deep, you know, I think the other thing too, is just like, you know, like nowadays people are saying like, oh, like, like, people support divest invest at 68%. Like, I'm just like, yo, like people wouldn't support divest invest at 68% if, if like defund wasn't like on their throats, you know, like all of a sudden people want to like, you know, take on the thing that like sounds more lighter or sounds more cooler or whatever. Um, when they're faced with something like defund and as polemical as defund, you know? And so, and that's just, you know, that, that, that's basic. I mean, people wanted to do more of the things King was talking, certain things that Kings was talking about, the minute black power came came online you know so you know i i you know at times i'm just like i don't know at times i just really don't know where what people are trying to get at outside of just like maybe they're just trying to like sound like they have a hot take or something like that you know i don't really know yeah i mean as i said it just it feels entirely incongruent because if you're talking about 
especially the U.S. prison system, right? It's hyper, as I said, it's hyper capitalist. It literally exists in order to, you know, it's a form of foreclosure. It's not just like, if we're talking about Marx, right? Like you're taking, yeah. you're literally, it's like the first chapter in Capital or whatever, where they're talking about this process of removing people from the land. You know, you're criminalizing people for doing things that they normally do for having access to their own spaces. And people are being criminalized for existing, you know, and that's a perfect example of it. And you also have analyses that came later, you know, where we're talking about surplus population and all these things and how these groups are corralled, killed and and housed um, and then forced to engage in labor and whatnot because the normal traditional labor forces or the labor uh, source is no longer there, right? So, I mean, all these things go back to very basic Marxist and, and, and communist principles and yet, people are still hand-wringing over it. And I think the very glaring reason for that is because it relates to Black people. Like, I, I don't, you know, I'm, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just playing it yeah. playing like that. That's why, because yeah. I think if we saw, I'm, I'm just being honest, like, I think if we saw white people being murdered and arrested at the same rate as Black, Latino, and Indigenous people are in this country, um, I don't think we'd be sitting here and having this conversation right now about, people hand-wringing over it. I don't think there would, it would exist, right? Every day, mm-hmm. Jacobin or some other, you know, prominent uh, left organization, publication and, and webpage or media source would be talking about how we need to defund the police because look at what they're doing to the working class. Yeah. Um, but that they're not going to, you know, no one, no one's going to come out and say it. But I think in some ways their language and, and approach to this, their critique, supposed critique, which is often it's one that falls short and falls flat is a matter of, of racism. And they just, I, I don't think they're being honest with themselves about that, or they're trying to dress it up, but it's coming across a lot like dog whistles to me um, because you're dealing with something that's like very plainly connected to, um, you know, left and Marx Marxist analysis to, in a very explicit way, you know? Um, so, yeah. So kind of bridging off of that, I really wanted to uh, talk to you briefly about, What's been going on lately in Chicago? Um, you know, we saw the murder of Adam Toledo, um, Lori Lightfoot. <laughs> oh, what a mess. Uh, but, you know, she, she's she been flagrantly, I mean, I just, I don't know, just just, just blatantly um, inept and, and perhaps maybe not inept. I should say that she's been a perfect agent of the state, um, of a state that's, you know, highly yeah. partial, racist, et cetera. So maybe she's doing her job really well. Um, by those standards. And and it's unfortunate that, you know, this is, it, it just feels like we're on some sort of loop because I remember a few years ago, we were talking about another um, young man who was murdered by police and whose video was hidden from the public because of, you know, fear of, of popular outrage um, by another mayor uh, in in Chicago, infamously. And so I'm trying to figure out, you know, why, do we keep seeing Laquan McDonald's or Adam Toledo's? And despite all of the activism that's going on, you know, I remember the movement to to get Rahm Emanuel out and to change um, the the DA. Like right now, you all have uh, Kim Fox, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, that yep. was a movement with Asada's daughters, very much at the helm. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about Chicago politics. Like, what the hell is going on over there, and how are you all? You as an activist and someone involved in, in you know, organizing and whatnot, how, how are people embracing this and dealing with this um, struggle? And then furthermore, 
what has been um, the Chicago-based response on the ground to some of the recent um, revelations about BLM, at least the global network, um, having been co-opted rather clearly um, and not really doing enough to support local Black Lives Matter and other organizations that are working toward, um, at the very basic uh, level, a reform of the police, if not an abolition thereof or abolishing thereof, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I think, you know, for better or for worse, you know, we're going to keep on saying, you know, the things that Lori Lightfoot does until we, um, you know, build enough, strong enough organization and movement on the ground, you know, um, and, you know, and it, you know, and us being committed to, a, to, you know, building real electoral majorities and then, um, and then masses when it comes to protests, you know, um so not just having like like you know a cadre small grouped um organizations um i think you know and and wins and losses kind of ebbs and flows you know and so i think um you know what we're seeing with lori is obviously it's to be expected i mean she's a prosecutor she was um the the person who um you know, that we were fighting against when it came to accountability for, for Rakia Boyd. And she was in the way of that process. Um, didn't do really any sort of accountability for the police officer, even, you know, liberal accountability, you know? Um, so, I mean, I'm not necessarily surprised by it. I think what's lacking still is a commitment from, so I think the socialist aldermen are fairly good in terms of their, their commitment to defund and their commitment to, um, I think more, you know, more on like the radical side, like um, of uh, of police accountability and civilian review board. Even though I, I don't believe in them, but that that does have like a, a, a genuine, you know, black radical le- legacy that comes out of um, um, CPAC. Um, and so you see that commitment from those folks. I think the the lack of commitment is has come in is. Um, I think still from, um, you know, progressive labor, you know, in Chicago is just really dependent on labor. So if Chicago teachers union at the SEIU locals don't really get behind it and don't fight for it as they do other issues or whatever, then it's more likely not to happen, you know? So, and that's what's happening here in Chicago. And so, you know, we just, we just need that, you know, we need those folks to keep the same energy they have at bargaining time, or let's say like raising a minimum wage or any other issue. We need that same energy for, defund the police and, um, you know, and alternatives to, you know, alternatives to policing and investment in our communities, because it's just, you know, it's not there. I mean, on the ground, folks are still, obviously, they're still organizing, they're still protesting, they're still um, confronting aldermen, they're still meeting with aldermen who are sympathetic, they're still, um, you know, um, organizing transformative justice and restorative justice hubs. They're still doing violence interrupter programs, you know, mutual aid, right? Folks are still doing all those things and are committed to like widening our base. I think right now, you know, we noticed at least for the defund CPD campaign in Chicago that like it was a lot of white folks, it was not enough young black folks, and then also not enough, um, you know, um, elderly black folks too. So then that's really our focus in terms of like getting into black churches, getting into like um, black black clubs um and trying to like you know really explain why defund matters why defund would work um and why they should get behind defund you know and you know the idea is that you know sometimes people are like oh you know do these folks have to be abolitionists or not you know again no they don't and a lot of times they're not you know they just know that 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 you are 
that you're repping, but you're there to work with them um, on the terms that as long as it's like not enabling more police power and enabling more police in our community. So um, I know that's kind of like more of the boring end of like the organizing stuff, you know, um, but um, yeah, I mean, we really hopefully, you know, we'll have someone who runs as mayor who's not someone like Lori Lightfoot, you know, in terms of who's more radical and who's more principled as like, even as, even if they're progressive, you know, um, and then, you know, we just, but we got to be committed to, you know, a level of mass, of planned mass disruption, like we saw last summer, you know, that was spontaneous, but we need planned mass disruption in that same way. I think sometimes people forget when they look at Birmingham or Selma, right, those are like planned mass disruption events that took on like months at a time, you know, and we need to like have that same kind of energy. And that really sets the tone for if, um, you know, politicians and not just politicians, but like the capitalists behind them, you know, like the the people who fund police foundations, the people who fund people like Lori Lightfoot, that's what compels them to like bend the knee and like succumb to, to our will instead of doing their will. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that we can, get close to those conditions this summer. You know, obviously I'm organizing for that. All my comrades are organizing for that. Um, but that that's what's going to be needed, right? You just can't, you can't door knock your way to defunding the police. You can't like out theoretical or out propagandize your way to defund the police. You have to have enough street protests and enough action on the street to really make it felt that people feel like they need to succumb to, uh, to your will, you know, and so that's that that's what's going to be the focus, and hopefully we can get there. And and if we don't get there, we'll learn and figure out how to do better, you know. So, yeah, I I had one quick question, or I guess it's not the answer may not be quick, but the question is quick. Um, <laughs> Sorry, too long to, to tell me like, yo, brother, like, yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, we we love that. I mean, like that's what you're here for, right? You're our guest, so we want to hear from you. Um, yeah, but after that, uh, Richard, feel free to ask away. Um, so I am, I'm curious then, and it's something that I've, I've long kind of, not long, but I guess recently grappled with, um, this idea of the progressive prosecutor, right? And that's why I raised Kim oh, Fox. Yeah, yeah, um, Kim. Yeah, huh? Yeah, Kim. Yeah, I forgot about Kim. Yeah. No, no worries. Um, but I think that it's, you know, it's something that we've seen in, in Philly with Larry Krasner, um, Kim Fox. I know there's some others um, like Chessa Boudin in California. Um, and I'm, I know that they've been doing good work thus far. I know that, that um, some issues have come up with Krasner and whatnot, but I, I guess for me, what I've always grappled with and tried to understand much like, you know, this, a similar question on like, what do we do when, when police commit a crime? If we're thinking about it as abolitionists, right? Like where do we fit police or people who cause direct harm in, in the communities that we support, right? What do we do with that um, sort of contradiction? And so one of the contradictions for me that's always come up is like, what is a progressive prosecutor? Does it exist, right? Because it's almost like saying, you know, a, like like a good good police officer, right? Um, and from for me, I understand that, um, you know, there can be maybe good police officers, but the issue isn't so much changing out the individuals, but changing the system. So where does the idea of a progressive prosecutor fit, if at all, in a, in a larger abolition um, framework, as opposed to one that's just reformist? Um, and if you could talk a bit about that, and then uh, Richard, feel free to, to, to take over from there. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I I don't think progressive prosecutors fall into abolition work. You know, I think for sure it falls into decarceral work, right, or maybe defund work. But 
yeah, I don't think there's anything abolitionist about a prosecutor. With that said, like, I don't think, you know, I, I sometimes think that we call too many things cops or police-like things. So I don't think a prosecutor is directly what a what a cop is and, he, and even what a cop is allowed to do um, by, you know, like by law and judicial, you know, like um, expectations, right? So um, there's like all these different types of powers that are police are allowed. Actually, you know, to technically police power is... Um, is allowed to be unlimited and undefined for for that specific reason, un unlike a prosecutor, um, which has like different types of curtailing things within it. But that's that, that's probably getting too too into the weeds. But anyways, um, um, so but yeah, I I just don't think they're yeah. To me, it's not abolition. I, I still think it's important to like have a strategy around making sure you get pro progressive prosecutors like into office, right, and into um, um, and making sure that they're actually progressive, you know, but if, if that's my, my only issue is, is like when that's presented as like the solution or the prime solution um, and um, and is it and is and isn't presented as this could go also really bad, like not really bad, but bad, like how cat and like Kasner's case in terms of like actually expanding the the purview and the role of the prosecutor's office then um, and funding it more, right? It might not be to directly carceral things. It might be more restorative things, but those things should still not be in someone like Kasner's office. It should be in a public health department or another department that's completely not carceral at all. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, I, you know, I think Kevin Kim Fox here has helped definitely when it comes to like things like protests and jail support and like, um, you know, I think that that it does help, right? It is important that that you have that, um, and you can even see by the reaction of a certain element of the capitalist class in the city of Chicago that we're trying to get Kim Fox out, right? Like it, it you know, it is, and we had private equity firms like dumping in tons, like millions of dollars into into her opposition, right? So it does mean something, right? Um, but I just think it's just important to set expectations of like. Hey, this is progressive. This can call. This can fall into like really liberal or reactionary things. And then this is like the radical option, right? And the radical option is like making sure we have a fully funded public defenders department, right? Making sure we have, you know, there's all these other different types of demands and focuses that you should have in order to make sure you truly have, um, you know, the type of change that that we want to see. And then on the abolitionist level, of course, then there's a whole. I mean, I think the, the abolitionist level still again. You know, the difference between, like, let's say, abolition, let's say, de decarceration. So, like, what's the difference between, like, Ruth Gilmore and Michelle Alexander is, is that, you know, the the decarceral kind of progressive reform thing will will try to, so not liberal reform, but progressive reform will try to make it about, well, we got to focus on the prosecutors. We got to focus on kind of like the architecture around the police itself, whereas abolition still says, I mean, A, it still always says we have to transform society. So we have to like move from a capitalist society to like some form of socialism or anarchism or, or communism. And then also on top of that, though, it says that um, your object has to be the police and the prison and systems of control and surveillance, right? Like that has to be your object in terms of what you're going after and the power that you're trying to reduce, um, not just the architecture around it that keeps it in place, you know? Earlier, you mentioned uh, the how organized labor played a kind of important role in the organizational and political kind of framework in Chicago. And I know Chicago is one of the places in the country where organized labor is still relatively strong comparatively to other places like in particularly in the South and elsewhere in the country. And so 
it, you also mentioned that uh, it was sometimes they weren't as uh, uh, as rapid to get on some of the more radical kind of things that uh, you find yourself politically uh, involved with. And I was wondering, is there is that something where the kind of the overlap in the DSA membership and labor organizing membership and particularly in the whiteness where there could be some sort of a, a pressure applied that way. Is that something that's going on or that you could speak to at all? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is like usually some of the loudest, like especially the white voices, the loudest about labor or whatever, like they've never organized in labor day in their life. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's always, always kind of like cosplaying, like they're like these like huge pro-labor folks, whatever, but it's like, you know, it's an idealist sense, not an actual day-to-day -day sense, you know. Um, similar to, I think, uh, sometimes people like valorize the black church, but then like haven't gone through the actual, all the different things that, that, that come with that. So, um, you know, but for sure, yeah, the DSA, we, we do have strategies around that. You know, sometimes it gets, it, it gets applied. Um, and yeah, it's it's it it gets applied, but it's not um it's not coherent enough yet. You know, DSA. I mean, we're just honestly just not powerful enough yet to like really, I think, impact those kind of like impact those changes in the way that we want. And I think also, you know, DSA, we still suffer from not suffer from. I think rightfully at times are pointed at that it's still you know it's a white majority organization that. Um, you know, and most for the most part, we have no right to tell, um, you know, people of color, you know, black and brown majority organizations like the Chicago Teachers Union, like most SEIU locals, right, you know, what to do or how to do it, you know, and so um, I think that's usually the struggle that that that, that we have. Um, and, and usually the folks that are putting the pressure on is like, you know, like I'm part of the defund CPD campaign, which was started by the Black Abolitionist Network. Um, so, you know, the, the pressure is usually put on through those kind of folks. Um, and at times they're responsive, but, you know, not responsive probably in the, in the ways that I think that they need to be. Um, and they know where they stand. And obviously I'm still comrades and friends with them, you know, and, um, you know, hopefully we can move their membership and have a chance to build with their membership. You know, like they're definitely open with us doing teachings there and we've done teachings with them. And so we just got to keep on doing it. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't. No shade to DSA. Obviously, that's my organization, but yeah, I wouldn't over, I wouldn't oversell that aspect of of what we do. So, gotcha. Yeah, no, I I think a lot of people are struggling with you know trying to find some sort of balance between their ideological and theoretical kind of understandings that they've been developing, and then how that applies and how to apply it to the organizational and the direct action work, and kind of. Uh, finding a balance between those. And I think the material conditions in the ground uh, in Chicago are different than what they might be in Atlanta, which are different than what they might be in S Seattle or Tacoma or in LA and so on and so forth. And so like, yeah. uh, I, I feel that uh, information and understanding about those and then having the organizational frameworks is incredibly helpful. So like, I am very appreciative towards DSA towards that, but you also mentioned and uh, Wendy as well about kind of, moving going into dsa spaces and it was a predominantly white space in my case the only other person of color that i saw was somebody that brought in like was carrying things and didn't actually stay for the meeting and so like it was oh a very oh it, was a, 
Yeah, it was very uncomfortable experience. It was like, okay, so I see a black person doing work and they're not even a part of this meeting. Right. And this is in the blackest city in the state that I live in. And so like, it was just very jarring experience. And so like, yeah. Yeah. knowing about Afrosuck and so like, is uh, for me, it's like, okay, you know, there is the space, there's this work going on. It's like, that's something that I could see involvement in. But I also see the kind of frustrations and hurdles and barriers that that you get that Afrosoc and black people in DSA generally bump up against and see those frustrations and want to see outside of that. But you also mentioned the large membership of DSA uh, comparatively to some of the or the other organizational work that you've done, but also that it's still relatively small as an organizational power comparatively to some of the opposition that it faces in the grant scheme. And so I think working through and doing the work and building is an important part of that. And I think uh, it's what you've described so far is that it, it's work and it's not always enjoyable and that there's, you know, it, it's, it's work, you know, and, yeah. but it has to get done. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I mean, and touching on that, like BLM global network thing, you know, it's like, you know, cause our, our, our BLM chapter who a lot of, you know, Aislinn and Mika, those, those are, those are my homies um, who like literally built out the BLM shy chapter from scratch, you know, and, and they signed on to the letter being like, Hey, you need to be funding us the right way and like what's going on with it. And this has been like years and, and years kind of fight is, um, you know, um, you know, obviously black folks fight amongst themselves too. And we have our own drama or whatever, you know, and like, it's ideological. Some of the times it's principled. Some, some of it is going against like grifter stuff. And so, um, you know, you're going to have the fight one way or the other, you know, sometimes it's going to be with your folks. Sometimes it's going to be with, you know, um, obviously white folks or non-black folks so it's just kind of depending what kind of fight you want to have and in the terrain of it that you want to have like I know for myself for Afrosoc and DSA like you know I never have to worry about you know 90 million dollars coming in where does it go because we don't have funders and we're due supported obviously you got to care about what the dues are but the dues are like so low and the amount of money is so low that you know we truly have an organization where um, you know the membership runs it you know not the staff and not like whoever like you know, Chapo Trap House don't run DSA, you know, and like, and like the biggest media folks don't run it or don't whatever, they might be getting their bag somehow else, but they're not getting it off of like the work that we're doing on the ground. And so, um, and I think for myself, that was, you know, after the experiences, which is like, you know, the Black Lives, Lives Matter movement in general, um, you know, I was definitely always going to be invested in doing, you know, Black led organizing and Black organizing, and I still do, but I just want to do it in a way where, um, you know, that was always democratic and members and it was democratically controlled. And even my time in labor, I learned that too, was just that, cause you know, a lot of people, especially on the DSA side will like romanticize what labor unions are. And I believe in labor unions, right? I believe everyone should have a right to a union and I'm a union person. So like the day I die, like I even have like, a, like, you know, I'm getting a union car, like, um, but you know, we shouldn't romanticize it. You know, like we shouldn't ignore what Jerome was fighting about, you know, like we should understand that, um, they're very bureaucratic and undemocratic spaces too, you know? And so, you know, I just didn't want that in my organizing no more, you know, it doesn't mean I didn't want the political fights. I knew the fights were going to be there. I knew the drama was going to be there, but I just wanted it to know that like, Hey, if your side won that fight and won that argument for whatever, then I, I know it happened straight up and it was what it was. And it wasn't involved in no grifting. It wasn't involved in no personality thing or whatever. It was just, it, you know, you, you won that political fight. You won a strategic fight. I need to take the L and then just move on with the organization, you know. Um, whereas the other stuff that was happening before, it would just get, 
either so escalated on some grift and stuff, or it just would get so escalated on some like, you know, um, you know, kind of like what I would feel like is like the Black Panther BLA breakup, you know, which was like, you know, who's more radical or who's having the right political line of when we should do A, B or C, you know, and like a lot of that stuff would happen too with like the anti-electoral folks or the pro-electoral folks or like the mutual aid folks versus the direct action folks. And it was just like, these are stupid, you know, at least for me, these are stupid fights, you know, like we need to be figuring out how to do it all, but just within a context, you know, and, um, you know, and I'm just glad I don't have to deal with that anymore, you know, nowadays, um, not saying it's all kumbaya or whatever, but yeah. Um. I think the idea of an integrated and multi-pronged approach and that, you know, involves a, a variety and it, it possibly all of the kind of ideas about how to go about it, but around a, a center centering goal is a, is a good kind of vision that I, that I'm picking up out of what you're saying. And so I am very appreciative of that. Thanks, man. Yeah. And, and AfroSoc, we're always, you know, we'd love to have y'all. So, you know, so whenever. I'm, I'm, like, I'm trying, you know, like, <laughs> I just, I, I hear, you know, it's just like every time I just, I see or hear something, I'm just like, ah, you know, but like, I need yeah. to be more involved in direct organizing. And, and that's one of the things I wanted to do. Coronavirus has kind of put somewhat of a hiatus on that in general, but like, that's something I'm personally working on. So like, if, it, it, you're making an appealing space sound appealing. So like you're, yeah. you're doing, doing good by them. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, for me, like it's always been a matter of, I mean, Richard and I actually talk about this all the time, but um, you know, like getting really close to joining an organization, but then seeing some stuff that kind of makes me second guess or like feel <laughs> kind of weird some way, you know what I'm saying? Like I get kind of, Oh, so for me, what I've found, most valuable because I'm like too much of a hater or critical <laughs> um, is I have a tendency to, I, I think of like support the groups in the way that you can and don't stand in the way. Right. Um, yeah. Especially of the work that they're doing that's toward liberation. I mean, you can, you can criticize and you can be, um, you know, like, as I said, feel some kind of way about what they're doing or things that you may disagree with or angles or that they take that you don't like. But at the end of the day, recognizing that they're fighting for your liberation and mine and that, you know, we we can support them even if from the side. Um, I do think people should join organizations though that that they feel best suit their ideological needs or direction that they're going in. Um, and I don't, I don't, I'm not one of the people who's like, don't don't join an organization. I think that's silly. Um, but your mentioning of the BLA, the Black Liberation Army, just now reminded me of my final question. Um, and and uh, it's a weird segue that I'm about to make, but trust me, there's, <laughs> it makes sense. Um, so earlier today, actually, I was talking to my mother and um, she had seen an interview that I did recently on Red Life podcast where I talked about communism and, and you know, like identifying that way. And my mother was like, who, my mother, by the way, who grew up in like the height of the Cold War and whatnot, like yeah. she's like, you're a communist. You're like, what can you can you tell me a little bit what that means? Right. Um, because you know, and then she started talking about sort of like popular media representations of Cuba and all of these things and, and mm -hmm. how she was deterred uh, from further exploring that political ideology because of what she had seen in quote unquote communist countries through the US media, right? And my mother is American. So like her whole life, she's been, you know, influenced by US mainstream media mm -hmm. um, and history. And so I was breaking down to her all this stuff. And, and then I, it clicked like, Oh, she knows communists. Like she, 
you know, I, I like, <laughs> I literally like laid out like 500 years of Cuban history, right? Um, and then she mentioned, yeah, it's like the Black Panthers because the media lied about them too. And I was like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like she, yeah, she was exposed to this. She knows. And then she started talking about Angela Davis. And I said, yeah, you know, Angela Davis was, yeah. is a communist too. And I know you like her, right? So there's, there was like a, a, I don't know. There was this interesting moment where I think some things clicked for my mom um, who's in her sixties. And, and that really was like a, a pivotal moment for me as her child, you know? And so what I was thinking about when you mentioned, she mentioned the reason BLA fits is because she mentioned Angela Davis and Black Panthers and BLA and stuff like that. And I said, you know, what are the, I thought to myself, at least, what are the ways that people like you um, can reach out to people and encourage them and further educate them, or I guess engage in an, in an act of mutual education, actually, about what abolition means, what what the sort of historical trajectory of that kind of work has been. And I think specifically of Angela Davis, because I know she is an abolitionist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at least, in, you know, I know, she, I know she was involved in George Jackson's, Jackson's trial and things like that. And you mentioned him as well. So I was wondering if you could just talk briefly about the history um, you know, from your point of view, I know you talked about your entree into it, but if you could talk about its actual history of what you know of it, um, since this is a history podcast, and then also um, maybe what are some readings or, you know, um, talks or something that you would suggest for people to check out, especially if they're unfamiliar with, with the, this sort of ideology, uh, where you think that should go? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, I think when it comes to books, well, I mean, there's always like kind of two trajectories, right? There is the like more recent moment of abolition, right? As it relates to um, police and prisons, right? That that um, gets um, like articulated um, like in the, in the early 70s. Um, and then there's, of course, abolition, um, you know, a- abolition in relation to slavery, right? And and um, to the to the global anti-black slave trade. And then, and I think the book, The Slave Cause, the slaves cause really explains and traces how it is a radical political tradition um, that really it's the first, you know, quintessential American um, radical political tradition. I would actually make an argument um, similar to what Brendan McQuaid makes um, that it precedes socialism, right? That is, it is a radical tradition that precedes kind of like all these kind of Eurocentric ones that, we, we start hearing about, um, well, they're told in Eurocentric ways when we're talking about, you know, socialism, communism. Um, and um, so I think there, there's that part, you know, some people periodize it at different times, you know, for myself, I started at like, right, the, the emergence of Haiti as um, the first and only um, free abolitionist anti-colonial um, uh, project. And then, you know, what we understand to be the Underground Railroad, um, the general strike of, of Black slaves, um, and then, of course, like, uh, Maroonish communities, um, and then, of course, like, fugitive acts um, of against masters and against slave institutions, like, for example, even thinking of, like, Nat Turner. Um, and I think for... Um, and then, like for the kind of current moment of what abolition is and how we get to that moment, and, and and obviously that moment, some people like Gary Dorian kind of keep pushing it. Um, you know, I think he has a book called like The New Abolitionist or some something abolitionist, and then he connects then 
what became the Black social gospel to then what abolition was and the continuation of it. So then the project of like how Reconstruction got built, how people understood what Reconstruction was and the making of what the voice calls an abolition democracy, but then also after what happens with Jim Crow, um, understanding how to, and then this is where it gets more strongly connected to labor, socialism, um, another radical politics. But even before then, when it was like, you know, during uh, during the time when we were, when when we had formal slavery, um, you know, there was always the connections to um, to, to labor parties and, and, and labor organizing. Um, and other radical currents going on and anti-colonial organizing from Native American folks. Um, and then you know, you get traces of it. You start seeing the reemergence of ideas around abolition in response to then like people like Bayard Rustin and especially other black folks, but other white folks too, who were starting to get imprisoned due to being, dra um, due to being um, drafted. Um, they didn't want to do the World War II draft. So then they would, you know, protest it, be against it. And then they, they'd be in prison. Um, and you start getting this understanding that prison isn't just this thing that goes after criminals or quote unquote bad people, or isn't just for crime control, but it's to really control and curtail um, leftist and radical political activity. Um, and then you, you know, with the emergence of the Black Freedom Movement, of course, and Dan Berger, you know, and, and, and Toussaint really make this argument that, you know, as you saw folks adopting the jail strategy, the jailing strategy for the Black Freedom Movement, you started seeing the prison become folded back into the open, like into the mainstream of the prison and the jail, back into the mainstream as the site of... Um, that curtails democracy and is fundamentally an anti-democratic space, just as like the workplace once was like at the height of labor struggles, you know? Um, and, and then, you know, of course you get what, you know, King's letter from a Birmingham jail to that, that's like paradigmatic of this. Um, and then from there you build out from the prison or prisoner organizing going on an explicitly anti-abolition politics um, that says that like, you know, if you care about, racial justice, like radical racial justice, if you care about um, radical economic justice in the terms of like socialism, communism, anarchism, you know, those kind of things, then you have to deal with and confront the prison and then you have to deal with and confront the, the, the police state. Um, and so then throughout the 70s, um, you, you, you start getting actual organizing to abolish um, prisons and, and policing. This is before you know, the mass, you know, mass incarceration, you know, like thing, you know, this is like when there was only maybe 300,000, you know, uh, you know, folks locked up. Um, and so then, um, you know, you get the rise of, of community organizations um, fighting for forms of, of, of direct abolition. Um, and then even, and this is something that, um, you know, a lot of like, um, the class reduction is left, you would say, or like the anti-abolition or defund left would not want to admit that even in the Scandinavian countries, you had um, abolition movements and abolition organizing um, that, that, you know, because people love to, to praise like the social democratic, you know, like their, you know, like the, the Scandinavian countries for their thing, but they, those, those type of uh, social control institutions and police institutions come directly out of an abolition movement that had to happen. Um, and then that's like what, you know, what the compromise was. It had nothing to do with like social democracy because there's plenty of social democracy in places that have, you know, far more carceral systems and far more heavily policed things also. Um, and um, and even for Angela Davis, she speaks to like being influenced by seeing what, what was going on there. 
Um, and then, you know, I think the next big, big upsurge is, you know, it, it's in conjunction with seeing like a lot of the prison boom going on within like, um, you know, regional, like, um, like in like more what you, I guess you'd call like farm areas or non-urban areas. Um, and then people starting to do organizing against those prisons. Um, but then the real kind of paradigmatic moment of like the emergence of like abolition proper as like, this is the political tradition. This is what we're organizing on. This is what we're building on. Then comes out of critical resistance, like the making of the critical of critical resistance, you know, with, like, you know, Ruth Gilmore, Joy James, Angela Davis, Beth Ritchie. Um, and you can, you know, you can go down the list and, and, and actual, you know, political prisoners who, who, who are locked up and folks and folks who are locked up also. Um, and that's when you start seeing the emergence of what we understand to be today, like abolition organizing. And, um, and you know, you kind of get to this moment. I mean, you, you saw it in strands with like Black Lives Matter, with Dream Defenders, with BYP 100. Um, but, you know, at least for me, I feel like the, the time when it's been most legible and understood and that like, you know, someone like my mom knows it or everybody knows it it was with the defund moment like you know it wasn't people weren't um even before defund no one in my family was you know my, my sister's going to a, a miriam kaba book study now you know um she wow, wasn't that's, doing, that's amazing you know she wasn't doing it she was reading black lives matter related stuff before this moment right but you know like she wasn't um even some of her rhetoric or content like it wasn't you know she was obviously very critical of police and but but she was far more in like the you know, more into the the policing is bad and, you know, we need to curb it as much as possible, but not like on the abolition side of things, you know, and I'm not saying she is an abolitionist, but in terms of just understanding it and that it's a thing to respond to and that it's the thing to like kind of orient yourself around. Um, yeah, I, I do feel like that's what defund is and that's like the deep, the de, you know, the demarcation. I, I think in some ways it kind of has saved like and by us, I mean like just like our larger movement of, you know, whether it's like black movement or abolition movement. I think it, it kind of saved us from, kind of like you know all the fuck shit that's going on with like you know Black Lives Matter Global Network and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I'm you know I'm definitely grateful for that and um and I, you know I believe it's a good politic. I believe it's you know it is it, it it's always my primary radical tradition before even socialism or anything else. You know like I, I may identify with all those things, but um you know I'm I'm birthed through um you know revolutionary third world marxism and then um abolition you know so you mentioned uh, at the top uh that a lot of kind of your uh what brought you here was uh learning and understanding things through political prisoners and i was wondering if you could speak a bit more about how the political prisoners and organizing uh on, like, on their behalf and and in solidarity with them and towards their freedom uh, has both uh, influenced you, like you personally, and then also your organizing. Yeah, I mean, my first like you know organizing actual project. I mean, it was like a fundraiser for the Angola Three, um, and it was connected to one of the people at ACLU was had been working on their thing, and and one of the brothers had gotten out, and uh, finally had gotten out. So that was you know my first initial connection, and then. Um, and then connected to then you know Fred Hampton Jr. when he got out, and luckily I was able to do like a whole car ride with him from Madison to Chicago, um, building on that. And then it was the Puerto Rican political prisoners um, trying to get everyone out, and most folks got out at the, at that time except for Oscar. Um, 
because he just um not he didn't want it it was um there was terms of 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 the thing that that he didn't want to that that he didn't want to um say yes to you know and um in, in a very principled way so i had to like respect that and understand that and um and so i think that um I think all that work just always allowed me to understand that. I think before that moment, I just had always understood, you know, prisons and, you know, it was kind of like that thing of like, oh, it doesn't rehabilitate people. Oh, it doesn't, da, 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 you know? Um, but I think at that moment, then I understood it as like fundamentally like this, like anti-radical, anti-leftist project that that's meant to like curtail our movements. And then you know, the the work around the George Burge um, torture survivors just then um, also allowed me just to understand that um, at some level, right, like everyone who's locked up are at some level like political prisoners and that they're made um, the conditions that folks are, are forced into prison and to jail. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say like in and like automatically like creates political conditions, but like, um, I mean, yeah, they're they're fundamentally unjust, but um, it just, yeah, you know, I guess sometimes just just certain things are unexplainable. But um, yeah, I mean, the the, the John Birch stuff is just you know it kind of falls into like then the the Frank you know the John Birch stuff is like that that moment where um, when then you're reading someone like Frank Wilderson, you're like, oh, that makes sense then, you know, <laughs> um, because it's so um, the level of torture those folks faced for um you know at least with the black panthers at least with george jackson at least with political prisoners at least with the angola three you can be like oh you know these folks was out here getting it these folks who are going against the state they were you know doing woobops to bam you know um mm -hmm. and then like it gives it a kind of reasoning and a logic you know like oh that that's what happens but um you know the john birch stuff was very much you know the line that frank kind of says is that like you know when you see violence happens to black folks and there was latino folks though too who, who were tortured by john burge but it was majority black folks is that sometimes there's no logic like these weren't like you know the, the, these weren't big kingpins they weren't big political people they were nobody these were just like literally like just like black bodies and latinx bodies that just do just wanted to torture for the sake of it you know and mm -hmm. um and i think that kind of work and um the even once you got these folks out um because you you know you, you never want to say free at times you know I, I, sometimes i slip into that but mm. you know they're never quite free because um you know the repair isn't there the actual necessary apology isn't there the apology plus like the you know all the things that go into an amends isn't there too and so i i think just like all that stuff combined is kind of it's just like um you know some people say it's working how it's supposed to work some people say whatever, right? But it's just like um, that this this project, you know, the, the police, prison, and surveillance state is beyond any sort of transformation or repair or anything like that, you know? And so, um, yeah, at least for myself, I guess it, I mean, at times there's, I think, an analytical thing, but it's less of an analytical thing. It's just more of a, um, just like a sadness and, 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 and depression and just kind of like, what the fuck? And so, um but then also just like a focus of like this is the thing you need to focus on um first and foremost because it's just um it's not all right you know like when you you know i, I mean 
it gets so, uh, you know, people use that word a lot of times, normalized. I don't, I don't think it even, it, it even gets normalized. It's just like, um, you know, um, you know, and, and Gold is a slave plantation, you know? <laughs> um, like, it's, it's literally, it's like, you know, like, it's, it, like, and, um, you know, once you kind of sit in that horror um, and, um, you know, and people are just still doing what they do on Angola, um, it's it, it, it's just unreal. So um, I, I guess at some level, maybe I want to pretend it's an analytical connection, but it's more of like a, an emotional, spiritual connection in terms of why this work matters and, um, you know, why we have to keep fighting. So I think that those very uh, meaningful and important words, and I greatly appreciate your time and you sharing your your experiences and your uh, knowledge with us and uh, i do have to get going so uh, i will be this will be my last words but i just again want to express my uh sincerest uh, thanks for uh, your contributions thank you yeah thanks fam thanks richard see you later mm-hmm. till next time um, i just wanted to again like you know um i'll echo what richard said in terms of thanking you for being our guest and i also think um, several of the writers that you mentioned, you know, there are people that I've been getting into as well. Not so much the reading, just because I haven't had a chance to read anything because I always have a, a baby that I have to take care of. No, she's a, she's a toddler now, but you get what I'm saying. Same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but like that, some just listening to them speak and understanding things really helps a lot because they're so clear. You know, that's one of the things I very much appreciate about a lot of people involved in the abolitionist movement um, in the U.S. is that there's so much clarity in their words. Um, there's so much urgency. And I, I, as I said, I really appreciate that like anyone can come into this and learn. And I think that's what makes it even more bankrupt when people are like, what does this all mean? I don't know, like being very disingenuous about it when they're very clear um and prevalent <laughs> you know like well it's just like just feel like you like cops then you know or like you like jail like just right. do that. like I right mean, some people do that like amber lafrost at least says like no i want these people in jail it's like all right cool that's where right. you're at. i don't agree with it right <laughs> but other people just do this whole song and dance and it's just like okay like it's just not your jam Right. Yeah, just say that you have garbage politics and go, you right. know, or that, that right. you hate, you hate pop black people and go. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. right. Like, I, I don't, yeah, like the other part is just like, you know, if defund was coming from like the like majority white leftist socialist audience, like, you know, it would be, yeah, it would definitely have a different reaction to for that. For sure. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. As you said, like, there are, if you look at the leaders of the, the so much of the abolitionist work that's going on right now, the most prevalent people are, you know, black women. Yes. Um, that, that's it. That's me, you know, cause all the people you can name, like are black women. Right. Um, and so it's, it's just fitting that they, they have this kind of visceral reaction to their, their words and their work. Um, and, and also actively try to obfuscate or like make it seem less easy to understand or make this these concepts seem so difficult mm-hmm. when they're speaking plain English and very openly and clearly. And, you know, it's something that a lot of us go through, just anyone engaged in this stuff as a person of color, but especially as women of color, um, you know, as a woman of color myself, as a black woman, it's something that I deal with all the time where I have to, have to sit there and watch my very clear words get quote unquote translated for me by, by white leftists or, and especially white leftist men. Um, But yeah, so anyway, much appreciated. I think this work is, as I said, timely, important, always important. But I think the urgency is 
I don't, I don't know. I'm, I, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I feel like a lot of things are coming to a head. And especially when we have, you know, a verdict being read and more black people being killed, like at that same moment, you know, it's just, it's, it's so um, apparent that something needs to change. And I think that a lot of people who maybe weren't so interested or focused on these issues are starting to recognize that something is wrong. Um, and I think that those kinds of moments, much like we saw with, you know, chattel slavery in the past, even if some of the allies, quote unquote, allies involved in the movement don't have the most clear or, um, even helpful politics, sometimes you still feel from them that they recognize that something is wrong. Their motivation may be different than ours, but they recognize that there's a problem. Um, so hopefully that will help along the way, you know? Yeah. yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, that's the, um, yeah, it was, um, you know, I think that moment, especially with um, when, um, yeah, Brian's murder happened, that that was tough. Um, but I think at the same time, I was just like, you know, this is, um, you know, this is a devil's playground, but it's still God's universe, you know, and that like we, um, you know, whatever the message is and whatever the thing is that, that we need to build from it you know, that we, hopefully we can, you know, um, but it was, it was, yeah, it was tough. It was really tough. So, especially, you know, I have a daughter, so it was just, yeah, it was kind of out of control for me. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much, Jason, for being, for joining us, I should say. Um, I look forward to sharing your work that you've written. Um, and I hope that you write more. It's very important. Um, obviously, people can follow you on Twitter. We'll include all of that information in the show notes, how you can get in, talk, in touch with him, how you can read his work, um, and also some links with regard to um, abolition, ending prisons, ending policing as we know it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but thank you so much again. Much appreciated. And, and take care of yourself and your yeah. family. Yes, you too. Thanks. And thank you for listening. Once again, be sure to check us out on social media by following at LeftPOC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. And to check out our Patreon, where everything is always free, transparent, and open to the public by going to patreon.com slash LeftPOC, where you can also donate a dollar or more per month to per month. Wow, that's really hard to say. A dollar or more per month. Try to say that 10 times over very quickly. Or even one time, like if you're me, and continue to mess it up. (laughs) Anyway, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Be safe and uh, have a good one.